The Hollywood Writers Union reaches a tentative deal with studios to end their five-month strike, but there's no deal yet for striking actors. It's Monday, September 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up with House Republicans unable to reach a spending agreement, the White House is preparing for a government shutdown next week. Also, respiratory illness season is approaching in Massachusetts, so doctors are urging you to get vaccinated. I'm really looking at a period of time where there could be a lot of serious illness, a lot of suffering, but so much of it is preventable. And this hour, firefighters who deal with wildfires are in demand, but the federal money to pay their salaries is running out. We are now coming to a time when that is going to go away. And in its place, firefighters don't know what to expect. Patriots win, Red Sox lose, rain today in the 60s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's a tentative agreement between striking writers and Hollywood studios. If approved by striking writers, it could end a five-month-long walkout. Details of the proposed agreement have not yet been disclosed. But Writers Guild member and strike captain Bill Wolkoff says he is eager to see the terms. I know they would not uh, have uh, told us a tentative deal was reached and told us that picketing is suspended if it wasn't exemplary. CEOs from four Hollywood studios join negotiators at the table. They're facing thorny issues from higher residual payments when shows go into reruns and protections against artificial intelligence. Thousands of federal wildland firefighters are bracing for major pay cuts in less than a week unless Congress intervenes. NPR's Kirk Siegler reports an expected government shutdown before then is stoking fears of mass resignations within the force. About 19,000 federal wildland firefighters could see their paychecks slashed starting this coming Sunday unless Congress passes pending legislation that would give them a permanent increase. Prior to the fall of 2021, some rookie firefighters on the front lines of major wildfires had been making 15 bucks an hour. Now that year, U.S. Forest Service and other federal agency firefighters got temporary pay raises of up to $20,000 from the infrastructure law, but now those are set to expire. And in the meantime, efforts to give wildland firefighters a permanent pay raise have stalled in a divided Congress. The union that represents them is warning of a, quote, mass exodus from the workforce, just as we're going into the typical peak of California's wildfire season. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. President Biden is welcoming several leaders from Pacific Islands to the White House today for a summit. The White House says the forum will focus on climate issues, economic growth, and strengthening security. The Biden administration is trying to fortify U.S. relations with Pacific Island nations to counter China's growing influence. U.S. border officials have reopened a railroad bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports last week thousands of migrants crossed into the city. The International Railway Bridge was closed last Wednesday after a state of emergency declaration from the city's mayor. Vehicular traffic remains closed on the International Bridge. At one point last week, around 8,600 migrants crossed into the U.S. in Eagle Pass in a 24-hour period. The surge has also overwhelmed migrant resource centers, such as the one in San Antonio, which has been averaging around 750 migrants a day seeking assistance. The U.S. Department of Defense sent an additional 800 personnel to the border to handle the increase in crossings. By last Friday, the number of migrants crossing in Eagle Pass had dropped by around two-thirds. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Free COVID tests are once again available from the federal government. People can request four rapid tests per household through the U.S. Postal Service website. Larry Madoff is medical director for infectious disease at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. He believes rolling out the program as COVID cases go up is a good idea. People should know that even if they don't have immediate access to one of these tests, they can get tested at their health care provider. Their health care provider can test them for COVID and also for other respiratory illnesses. The average number of confirmed COVID infections has been ticking up slightly for the last month. Last week, the state reported more than 2,700 new COVID cases. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is set to announce her pick for the city's newly created seat on the MBTA Oversight Board. The Boston Globe reports Mary Skelton Roberts will take on the role. Roberts is an, a senior advisor for the nonprofit Climate Beacon Project. She's also a frequent rider of the T's Orange Line and 39 bus. Mayor Wu will be on WBUR's Radio Boston later this morning to discuss the Roberts appointment. Listen to that at 11. Autumn is off to a rainy start in Boston, and that follows a particularly wet summer. Data from the National Weather Service show the city got more than 21 inches of rain this summer. That's double the normal amount, and it fits into what scientists are expecting in New England because of climate change. Mary Stampone is New Hampshire's state climatologist. She says the atmosphere is getting warmer, and since warmer air can hold more water, that leads to extreme rainfall. So you have longer dry periods in between because the atmosphere is just holding onto that water because it can and it's getting more water. And then finally, when it's had enough, all of it comes out at once. Every New England state had one of their top 10 wettest summers this year. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The Patriots beat the New York Jets 15-10 to yesterday in New Jersey. At Fenway, the Red Sox lost the White Sox 3-2 to in a game that was ended by rain after six innings. And at the Garden, the Bruins won their first exhibition game of the year. They beat the New York Rangers 3-0. Rain today, it'll be in the 60s, drying out overnight and in the 50s. Some morning showers tomorrow, then partly sunny in the 60s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrust.org slash after the fact.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The senator from New Jersey is digging in. So far, Bob Menendez, facing indictment charges for bribery, is rejecting calls to resign. So his congressional colleague, Representative Andy Kim, says he will challenge him in the next election. We speak with Congressman Kim in just a few minutes. But first, let's catch you up on big news out of California that broke last night. Your favorite late-night TV shows might return soon with new episodes and new content. Writers and Hollywood studios yesterday reached a tentative deal. Wait a minute, are we saying those jokes on the late night shows are scripted? Anyway, if approved, the deal would end a nearly five-month work stoppage. Union members still need to ratify it. NPR's Madalit Del Barco has been reporting on the writer's strike since May, and she's with us now from Los Angeles to tell us more. Madalit, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Good morning. What do we know about this deal? Well, the Writers Guild of America seems very excited. The screenwriters celebrated together last night. I've seen their cheers posted on social media. And in its statement to members, the union called the deal exceptional with meaningful gains and protections for writers. Those screenwriters now have to vote to approve the deal after carefully reviewing the details. And they hammered out issues they had been at odds over, like higher residuals tied to the success of shows rerun on streaming platforms. They wrestled over having minimum writing staffs for every TV show, which would increase the number of episodes each season. And they agreed on language protecting writers' work and credits from being replaced by artificial intelligence. What do you think it took to finally come to an agreement here? You know, in the final stretch, negotiators were joined by top executives from four Hollywood studios, Disney's Bob Iger, David Zasloff from Warner Brothers Discovery, Ted Sarandos from Netflix, and Donna Langley from NBC Universal. Those heavy hitters met with the Guild at the offices of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers at their offices inside the Galleria, a well-known suburban shopping mall in the Valley. But these past five months have been very acrimonious with a lot of finger pointing by both sides. The studio heads met with the WGA once over the summer and the writers complained that they were chastised and not listened to. The CEOs had to deal with their investors and publicly they worried about their bottom lines. The studios delayed film and TV premieres despite a mutually agreed upon media blackout. There have been a lot of rumors and leaks to the trade publications. Writers on the picket lines and on social media asked their negotiators not to cave. And meanwhile, everyone in the industry, union or not, has been out of work. Well, so given all that, when will production start again? Well, that's the big question for everyone in Hollywood. Maybe everybody who watches movies and TV wants to know that too. The answer is as soon as possible. The writers may have made a deal, but they still have to approve it. And the actors union, SAG after remains on strike against the studios over very similar issues. Um, now the actors are waiting for the AMPTP to get back to them. And if that happens soon and the writers can work their magic and all the people it takes to make a TV show happen can get started again, some insiders say there might be time to salvage the winter TV season and we might see those late night and daytime talk shows come back right away. You know, Michelle, I went to several picket lines on Friday and I talked to a number of screenwriters, including Brian Nelson. Here's what he had to say. Whatever deal we make may be the template for other deals going forward, specifically, of course, the next people in line being SAG-AFTRA. 
Nelson says the writers will support everyone else who supported them. In fact, the screenwriters plan to continue picketing only in support of the actors who are waiting in the wings. So everyone in Hollywood is waiting for a happy ending to the saga. That is NPR's Mandalit Del Barco in Los Angeles. Mandalit, thank you. Thank you. Senator Bob Menendez, the New Jersey Democrat, is facing serious charges. He's been indicted, accused of receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and other valuables in bribes. Menendez denies these allegations and says he will fight them, but he has been forced to step aside as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he faces pressure to resign from fellow politicians in his home state of New Jersey. And one of them has already said he will challenge Menendez for his seat. That is Representative Andy Kim, and he is with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So you announced over the weekend in a post on X, formerly Twitter, that you would run against Senator Menendez, as saying you feel compelled to run against him because, and I quote you here, we cannot jeopardize the Senate or compromise our integrity. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that right now it's so important for the people of New Jersey to have representation in the Senate, have representation in government. And that is not what Senator Menendez can provide right now. He has major uh, allegations put up against him. He's going to have to be focused on that. There are a lot of concerns about his integrity. And I think it's important that we do everything we can to restore faith in, from the American people in their government. So, so that's why I'm stepping up to run against him. So, he, so he's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And Menendez has raised this point in his defense. And also Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, has said that he has a right to due process and a fair trial. Is it your argument that he's just going to be too distracted to do his job? Or is your argument that he is just too tainted to do his job, despite the fact that he has not been convicted of anything at this moment? He, he is absolutely afforded due process. That is our system. But that's going to take up all of his time. You know, this is something where uh, we need here in New Jersey somebody that's able to focus in and actually do the job and represent my family and other families here. And that's something that I think a lot of people here in New Jersey also have concerns about these allegations. So whether or not they can trust him and have faith in him that he's going to represent them to the best of his ability and with the integrity that is needed, that's in question right now. So, so Menendez has said, and in, in also speaking in his own defense, and we are expect to hear from him later today as, as well, he says that prosecutors misrepresented the normal work of a congressional office. What about that? Well, the, the normal work of the congressional office that I've done now in my congressional office for five years comes nowhere close to the things that we saw in those in those allegations in the indictment, uh, the gold bars, the money, the things like that, that I think were shocking. And for me, from a national security background, uh, what was talked about in terms of his engagements with other countries, most uh, uh, alarmingly Egypt, uh, those are things that are not normal. And I can tell you that is not even close to what I've seen in terms of the work in Congress. Hmm. So as part of the issue here, and I just want to mention here, he has been accused of corruption before. This is back in 2015. The jury could not reach a verdict and the charges were dropped. You could look at this in one of two ways. You could argue that prosecutors have overreached before, couldn't get a conviction, um, and perhaps they've overreached again. I think that's part of his argument. The other argument could be that he just walks too close to the edge and that Democrats can't risk it. Is that your point? Well, well I, I think my point is that, first and foremost, uh, the job that we have in United States Congress, it's a job whose job description is in the Constitution of the United States. 
that is a very humbling experience and one that demands the highest level of standard of morality, of ethics, of integrity. One should not even get anywhere near that line of seeing what we've seen in the indictment against Senator Menendez. I don't care how he's going to try to say that, you know, this is uh, just parsing words. That is not something you should even get close to. There should be no doubt about the integrity of someone like that. So the fact that he's even saying that shows that he has a very different idea of what it means to be a United States senator than I do. That is Representative Andy Kim. He is also a Democrat, which is the, the same party of the Senator Bob Menendez. He is saying that he will challenge Senator Bob Menendez in the upcoming elections, whether the senator agrees to resign or not. Representative Kim, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. A NASA spacecraft has returned to Earth carrying about eight ounces of rock and dust, enough to fill a cup. And scientists are thrilled because these black rocks are pieces of an asteroid. They've set up a laboratory just to study this stuff. And NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports that today is the first day scientists will be doing that. These rocks are older than the Earth. They're relics from the early solar system when planets were forming. NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft spent seven years traveling over a billion miles through space to get these asteroid rocks. Yesterday morning, it shot them towards home in a sample return capsule. Studio milestone, we have confirmed parachute deployment. This was the moment that Dante Loretta says he let out all the emotions he'd been holding in. He's a University of Arizona scientist who leads this NASA mission. It's consumed nearly two decades of his life. He knew the parachute would keep the capsule and its precious cargo from crashing and being destroyed. You know, tears were streaming down my eyes. I was like, okay, that's the only thing I needed to hear. From this point on, we know what to do. We're safe, we're home, we did it. Touchdown. After the capsule landed, Loretta helicoptered over a desert out to where it was sitting on the ground at a military range in Utah. It looked like a mini UFO, charred and blackened from its fiery trip through the atmosphere. It was like seeing an old friend that you hadn't seen for a long time. He says he wished he could give it a hug. He says there's no danger that there's any alien life inside. In fact, we're more worried about Earth's biology contaminating the sample. Because one of the key science goals is to see if carbon-rich asteroids might have delivered some of the chemical ingredients that led to life on Earth. To keep the sample pristine, the canister full of rocks will only be opened inside a special lab built to study them at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Loretta says the plan is to start analyzing some of the material on Tuesday. So I have to be patient and I'm, and I'm really exercising patience. I understand we need to go methodically, systematically through the hardware. We have a very well-defined procedure. He says unlike a kid at Christmas, he can't just give the package a shake to get a sense of what treasure might be hidden inside. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, tent cities have gone up in the wake of the earthquake in Morocco, and survivors are preparing to live in those conditions indefinitely. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Think you know Jay Wu? From nursing to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu. Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. A good chance of showers throughout the day today, otherwise cloudy and a high near 64. Tonight it falls to a low around 56 and will be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again with a high near 62. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Somewhere in Tokyo, dozens of nearly forgotten musical scores are gathering dust. They were penned by the late Spanish composer Gaspar Casado, who died almost 60 years ago. Some of the works have never been publicly performed. They're sealed away and nearly impossible to access, which is what an American musician wants to change. NPR's Olivia Hampton has the story. Gaspar Casado died in 1966, but the mystery around his missing music endures. And that's because there's something singular about that music. Catalan flair from his roots in northeastern Spain, but also stamped with a blend of influences from his time roaming across a Europe devastated by two world wars. I'll never forget the first time I heard his solo suite and it just sort of stopped me in my tracks and I thought, wow, that's powerful. It's very soulful. (laughs) 
That's Katie Turtell. She's an American cellist based in England who founded the Appalachian Chamber Music Festival. I caught up with her in the waning days of summer in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. It's one of several towns where the festival's third edition took place in churches, concert halls, outdoors, and even an old train station. Can you do your cadenza so we just, uh, sure. or the end of it or something? Through the festival and her concerts in the U.S. and Europe, Tertel is breathing new life into Casado's work. It has the spirit of Catalan culture and his experiences uh, in Europe, but I think it is a very energetic music that is informed by dance elements, it's informed by um, cultural elements from North Africa and from France. The second movement in the first quartet, you hear a reference to the Sardana, which is a Catalan dance. Tertel gathered two violinists and a violist to join her for the U.S. premiere of another piece, Casado's second string quartet, in late August. To see audiences' responses gives me a lot of hope that this it is worth gaining access and finding his unpublished works because his music has a lot to say and a lot to offer. Casado's music is unique because he wasn't obsessed with his legacy in the way some composers and even performers, such as Pablo Casals, everyone knows Casals, but in part it's because he really cared about how he would be lived on through history, how we would remember him. Casado was a student of Casals, his favorite student from what we know. The two Catalan cellist composers met in 1920s Paris, but the relationship soured in the years after the Spanish Civil War, under the fascist rule of Francisco Franco, and then through the Second World War. So staunch was Pablo Casal's opposition to the Franco regime that he refused to play in any country that recognized the dictator's government. He made a much-publicized exception for John F. Kennedy in 1961 and earned the Presidential Medal of Freedom two years later. In contrast, Casado described himself as apolitical. So Casals was a pacifist and he was very anti-Franco and actually left Spain and didn't return until after Franco's death. And he was quite definitive and staunch on his approach to this, whereas Casado being younger, I think, was more interested in performing. And he did play for the fascists and he performed in Germany during the Second World War. Because of those decisions, as a young artist, I think Casals held that against him. So for a long time, Casals almost refused to acknowledge that Casado had ever been his student, and that really interfered with Casado's exposure in America. Casals was already an established figure in America, and he wrote an accusatory letter about Casado that was published in the New York Times. Casado was forced to scrap a planned U.S. tour as a result, and even lost a contract with Columbia Records. As a result of that, he was sort of canceled, I guess, before that was the thing. Only a small handful of Casado's works are performed today. Pieces like his cello suite, or the dance of the Green Devil. He still had a very successful 
solo career in Europe, performing both on his own as a soloist, but also with his wife, Chek O'Hara, who was a pianist. As a result of that, we don't know his name the way we know Casals' name, even in the music world. Hara died in 2001. In her will, she left her husband's papers to Tamagawa University's Museum of Educational Heritage in Japan. 64 unpublished scores are believed to reside there. Only about 25 of Casado's works were published in his lifetime. Many have gone out of print. There are more solo cello pieces. We think that there's more chamber music as well as an orchestral piece. He wrote, he wrote a lot of guitar music as well. So quite a wide variety of works. We often say we need a, a broker to get into these archives. Many people have tried to go in the past and gain access to these archives, but they haven't had the kind of three-pronged understanding, somebody who not only speaks Japanese, but understands both the academic and musical reasons we want to get in there. And then academics and musicians who are studying this and know what to look for. So it is a complicated process and no one's quite cracked the nut yet, but we are hoping to do that soon. As part of her journey in telling Casado's forgotten story, Turtel is seeking to introduce around 30 of the unpublished works, presenting them to the public through performances, high-caliber recordings, and editions of the scores. The energy, the vivaciousness of what he writes, it's what continues to inspire me to play his music and to be passionate about sharing it with other people. This year, Turtel has toured some of these works with other musicians in the U.S. and Europe. They plan to give Casado's String Quartet No. 3 its U.S. premiere early next year in New York City. Olivia Hampton, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition, WBUR healthcare reporter Priyanka Dale-McCloskey tells us what to expect locally as respiratory illness season approaches. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. Thefreedomtrail.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congress has until the end of the week to pass a spending plan that averts a partial shutdown of the federal government. House Republicans remain divided on a budget. NPR's David Gurup says economists are weighing in on what a shutdown might do to the U.S. economy. Financial services firm EY says a shutdown would take one-tenth the percentage point off of GDP every week. Greg Daco is the chief economist at EY who tells me a concern of his is when this could happen. It comes at a time uh, when we are seeing other threats to the U.S. economy. 
The economy is facing all kinds of headwinds right now, and the Federal Reserve fight against high inflation hasn't ended. Last week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell signaled another hike in interest rates might be necessary before the end of the year because of high inflation. In Hawaii, some residents on Maui are being allowed back into the burn zone today for the first time since deadly wildfires swept across Lahaina last month. Jackie Young with Hawaii Public Radio says passes were issued over the weekend. The first ones to return had to prove they lived in or own property on Kaniel Road, known as Zone 1C. They were warned to don personal protective equipment and to avoid breathing the toxic air. Though much may not be left of their homes, many said they were ready to go back to grieve and heal. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This week, we'll learn more about the tax relief proposal from Democratic state lawmakers. They announced the bill late last week with few details. Leaders expect to make their plan known and send it to Governor Healy by the end of this week. State legislators left this summer after approving the budget, but without a promised tax relief plan, which they hope will help lower the cost of living in Massachusetts. The number of students is going up at some Boston public schools after years of under-enrollment. The city has considered closing and merging schools due to low enrollment. BPS Superintendent Mary Skipper tells WBUR's Morning Edition there was an uptick in registrations this summer. We're thrilled that we have seen so many multilingual learners enter our system. Since August 4th, we've had 1,000 multilingual learners register. You know, we're, we're seeing enrollment actually stabilize in some of our schools. Skipper adds that BPS has hired about 1,500 new teachers. Boston police are investigating a series of assaults near the Berkeley College of Music campus. Investigators say four people were assaulted in three separate incidents in the area early Saturday evening. No seri- serious injuries were reported. So far, no arrests have been made. It's 7.32. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. The Patriots won their first game of the season yesterday. They topped the New York Jets 15-10 to in New Jersey. The Pants will visit the Dallas Cowboys next Sunday. The Red Sox lost a rain-shortened game at Fenway yesterday. They fell to the Chicago White Sox 3-2 in six innings. The Sox have today off. And the Bruins won their first exhibition matchup of the year. They beat the New York Rangers 3-0 at the Garden. Cloudy with highs in the low to mid-60s today. There's a good chance of rain. Still mostly cloudy tonight, and we'll have lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow... Mostly overcast skies and highs in the low 60s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Federal wildland firefighters have faced staffing shortages and low morale for more than a decade. Lawmakers tried to create a fix by increasing their pay, but the money for that pay is running out. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo has the story. Rachel Granberg didn't plan on being a firefighter. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. That's what she went to grad school for. But along the way, she found herself working for the federal government in the nation's vast forests. Ended up just completely dropping all of the wildlife biology stuff and fell in love with fire. It is so cool. Now she works for what she calls her chosen family on hand crews and helicopters, putting out wildfires and managing public lands alongside thousands of others employed by the U.S. Agriculture and Interior Departments. Oh, golly. Every day is different. That's part of the fun. You never know what you're going to get. Every fire throws a curveball at you. But there's one curveball Granberg and nearly 15,000 other federal wildland firefighters can't fight off. Will there be a pay fix? How many people are quitting? How many people are just going to finish out the season and never come back? Federal wildland firefighters stand to lose up to half of their salaries in the coming weeks. That's because last year they received pay bumps as a part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. The bill was temporary. It was always meant to be temporary. That's Forest Service Deputy Chief Jaleth Hall-Rivera. We are now coming to a time when that is going to go away. And in its place, firefighters don't know what to expect. Because right now, there's nothing. Paul Rivera said that fire seasons are becoming fire years. This means more people are needed to fight fires and manage forests for longer time frames and more often. And the current pay and benefits scale was not designed for this intense work. We also are taking, I think, a much larger toll on our employees because of the way that we have to respond. That's why federal wildland firefighters have been asking for a new pay scale for over a decade. I could walk down the street to Home Depot and get an entry-level job that pays more than my job does as a captain. That's Ben McLean, a wildland firefighter currently out on assignment. Recruiting people to do this job is becoming more difficult, which means we have to work longer and longer hours and longer and longer seasons. Entry-level jobs pay about $15 an hour. A captain like McLean is barely making $70,000 now. Next month, that will drop to $50,000 if nothing changes. But some state outfits will pay $50,000 just for people without experience. And only Congress can come up with a permanent solution to the pay problem. There are efforts in both the House and the Senate. Still, lawmakers have a limited number of days to reach a deal and include it in any effort to prevent a government shutdown on September 30th. I am preparing for that government shutdown by I am always available. I have been working all my days off. I have been burning myself out just because I know that that shutdown might be coming. That's Granberg again, who fears a shutdown could further impact her pay. But even if the shutdown doesn't happen, I'm going to receive a pay decrease and I need to be ready for it. The Interior Department is set to run out of funds for firefighter supplemental pay on September 30th. The Agriculture Department estimates it will run out in November. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News. Many survivors of Morocco's recent earthquake are in mountain towns where they live in camps without plumbing or electricity. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley met with residents of one destroyed neighborhood. We're walking down an alley where there are destroyed houses on the left, some intact on the right. 
The ones that aren't left are too dangerous to stay in. There's just rocks and rubble and trash and stray cats and dogs, and it's hot. So, so hot. Our house is this one, her neighbors, and it's very dangerous. And now they are living, uh, they're staying in this tent. Okay. So, God. My interpreter and I accompany 35-year-old Fatima Aitmaid down her rubble-strewn street in the Atlas Mountain town of Amzmiz. Her house was sheared in half by the earthquake. She and dozens of her neighbors now live in tents on a dirt lot below the town. We don't have a home anymore. Our kids don't go to school. Everything has gone. Really, everything has gone. I'm hopeless. I don't feel any energy when I wake up in the morning. I see everything has been destroyed, and I think my soul has been destroyed too. She and her neighbors spend their days under a cluster of trees in the shade. Women and children, and there's cook stoves set up, teapots everywhere. The plot of land they're sheltering on belongs to 70-year-old Tayeb Farjish, who thanks us for our visit, even as he grieves for his town. Amziz was like a garden from heaven. We lived from our harvest. The young people worked close by in big cities like Marrakesh, and foreigners visited our mountain villages. But with all the destruction, he fears the tourists won't be back. 17-year-old high school senior Maryam Nazir describes in French and Arabic how her school was destroyed and many of her teachers and friends killed. We young people are lost. Our parents don't have a clue of what to do. And everyone needs some time to be able to think clearly again, she says. But Nazir says her goal of finishing school and becoming a nurse has only strengthened. The Moroccan government has promised to house those left homeless by the quake, but so far many basic needs have yet to be met. We don't have clothes or shampoo. We can't take a shower, the women tell me. They say everyone is itching from skin infections. There are 40 people sleeping in one tent, says one woman. They point to a ditch behind a clump of trees, their toilet. Despite the hardship, they serve their visitors tea and homemade bread to dip in local olive oil. The age range of this group is 95 to a one-year-old who everybody tries to entertain. These neighbors now live as one big family. Landowner Fajish says his house didn't collapse in the quake, but it could come down in one of the frequent aftershocks. I ran out with only the clothes on my back. So, of course, I've gone back in to get things, but I'm petrified every time I do. Fear is something everyone here is learning to live with. As we depart, Fatima Aitmaid joins us again. She's going to help her husband, who lost a leg to diabetes and can't get around. We climb a steep lane clogged with rocks and debris. The cracked and buckling wall of a house towers above us on one side. I take this road twice a day because I need to help my husband. He's up there working to bring food for him. Let's go, let's go, because I don't feel safe. She says passing that wall makes her heart stop, but she has no choice but to keep going. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Amzmiz, Morocco. This is NPR News.
Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Monday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we look at how Wall Street is reacting to the looming potential government shutdown. Overcast and low 60s today with a chance of rain. Upper 50s tonight and still cloudy. Low 60s and mostly overcast tomorrow. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Historic New England, hosting its 2023 summit in Providence, Rhode Island, bringing together regional and national leaders to share ideas and solutions to strengthen the livability and vitality of communities across New England. Be part of the conversation. Learn more at summit.historicnewengland.org. The iconic Boston Park Plaza Hotel is about to become part of the Hilton chain of hotels. The Boston Business Journal reports the century-old hotel will be rebranded next month. The deal is part of an agreement that will see the Park Plaza come under the ownership of a Mexican hotel developer. The Park Plaza opened in 1927 and is the third largest hotel in the state with more than 1,000 rooms. A couple who own several Boston-area restaurants is planning to open an upscale Puerto Rican restaurant in downtown Worcester. The Giantes DTW will be run by Hector and Nivia Pina. They run a similarly named restaurant in the South End. The couple tells the Telegram and Gazette the spot in Worcester could open by November. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Fall has arrived, and that means we're approaching respiratory virus season. COVID is already on the upswing, and other viruses, including flu and RSV, are also expected to tick up in the coming months. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey is here to tell us what to expect during this season of coughs and colds. Priyanka, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So where are we with the local COVID trends right now? It seems like a lot of people are getting sick right now. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And COVID has been increasing for the past couple of months. Hospitals have been seeing more COVID cases and the level of virus in wastewater has been rising. But here's the thing, this upswing is way below the level of previous surges. And COVID isn't hitting most people as hard these days because there's so much built up immunity from vaccinations and previous infections. And we have treatments like Paxlovid, which also help prevent severe illness. As we mentioned, COVID isn't the only virus out there. What should we know about the flu and RSV this year? Right. Those are the two other viruses that we expect to see every fall and winter. Um, Flu can sometimes be deadly, especially for older people. And RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, that is a really common virus, usually mild, but it can be severe for babies and for the elderly. And last year, you might remember, there was a big surge in RSV among young children. So I asked a few experts what to expect. They're watching for these viruses to spread in the coming weeks and months, but they can't predict exactly when. The good news is we have vaccines for all three of these viruses, and experts are hopeful at least some of the illness and death can be prevented. Yeah, the newest COVID vaccine recently became available to the public. What do we need to know about it? 
Right. The new COVID vaccine just started arriving in Massachusetts in the last week or so. Now, this shot was updated to better match the strains of the virus that are currently circulating. In that way, it's similar to the flu vaccine, which is also updated regularly. And for the first time, we have an RSV vaccine for people who are at high risk. So people 60 and older, as well as pregnant women who can pass the protection on to their babies in the first months of life. I spoke with Dr. Ashish Cha, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health and former COVID response coordinator for the Biden administration. Cha says as many as 100,000 Americans could die from respiratory diseases each fall and winter. So vaccines are really important. When I think about the fall ahead, I'm really looking at a period of time where there could be a lot of serious illness, a lot of suffering, but so much of it is preventable. I just want to stress that this is the first fall we have vaccines for all three of the major viruses that tend to make people sick. So who should get the new COVID vaccine? And as you mentioned, there there are vaccines for all three. So can we get all three at the same time? You can do that. Experts also say it's okay to take the RSV vaccine if you're eligible and and space that out a a couple weeks before or after the other two. Um, The flu shot and the COVID shot are both approved for everyone six months and older. And a lot of experts, including Jaha, say everyone should get them. And you can do both of those on the same day. I really hope that what we see here is people getting into a routine where they get their fall COVID and flu shot. And they know that that dramatically reduces their risk of getting significantly ill. And the general recommendation is to do this in October before Halloween. Now, some infectious disease experts say it's not so essential for young, healthy people to get the new COVID vaccine right away, that the benefits are not clear for this group. But there is consensus that older people and those with underlying medical conditions should get the new COVID shot. And for the new COVID shot, will it be free as it has been in the past? So health insurance companies are supposed to cover the costs of this shot. For people who don't have insurance, they can still get a free vaccine through a federal program. um, And this will be available at community health centers and pharmacies and other locations. Are experts worried at all about the impact on hospitals? Because in past in recent years, we've seen hospitals get overloaded during this season. Right. Winter is always a hard time for hospitals. They see a lot of sick patients in the winter. And um, they've sometimes had to delay non-urgent care because so many people are coming in sick with COVID or RSV or other illnesses. Cassandra Pierre is an infectious disease doctor at Boston Medical Center. She's hopeful we won't see that scenario repeat. We will not be seeing, should not be seeing, another season, significant strains on the healthcare system. I certainly don't anticipate that. But doctors acknowledge there's a lot they can't predict. That's been one of the big lessons of COVID. So we'll be watching to see what happens. WBUR healthcare reporter Priyanka Dale McCluskey, thank you very much. You're welcome. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, lots of people believe in the benefits of taking a plunge in icy water. We ask scientists if there's any research to back up those beliefs. It's 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people 
and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The Writers Guild of America has reached a tentative deal with Hollywood Studios to end a historic five-month strike. U.S. defense officials say the first American-made Abrams tanks have been delivered to Ukraine. And President Biden will host a summit with Pacific Island leaders at the White House today, where China is expected to be a main topic of discussion. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Showers are likely today. It'll be in the low 60s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This sentence could apply to the United States. Border security and migrants are at the center of a closely fought election. In this case, though, the sentence applies to Poland. A visa fraud scandal has rocked Poland's ruling party. And the European Union member, which makes up a key part of NATO's eastern flank, is involved in a border standoff with Russia's ally Belarus. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from that border. Hiking through the Białowieża forest is a journey through prehistoric Europe. This is one of the last remaining old-growth forests on the continent, home to the endangered European bison. But it's not a bison that stops me in my tracks. So it took me about five minutes of hiking down a wide trail through a beautiful forest, one of Europe's oldest forests, to arrive to one of Europe's newest border fences. It's a 15-foot-tall fence topped with razor wire. A camera on a pole watches my every move. And within a couple of minutes, a Polish soldier in camouflage holding an automatic weapon appears. Time for a swift hike in the opposite direction. Poland finished this 116-mile border wall a year ago in response to an uptick of migrants illegally crossing the border from Belarus. For years, the government of Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko welcomed migrants from throughout the Middle East and Africa, encouraging them to cross this border with Poland in an attempt to destabilize Europe. Now that Poland's built a wall, Belarus is reaching deeper into its toolbox. In August, Polish news reports showed footage of a military helicopter from Belarus flying over the border into Polish and NATO airspace. They're really watching us closely. They're testing our border wall. We are always anticipating what they'll do next. Katarzyna Zadanowicz is a spokesperson for the Polish Border Patrol. It started in earnest in May. Since then, events take place several times a week along the border. Just yesterday, there was an attack. The day before yesterday, there was another attack. Yesterday, a group of about 60 people gathered on the Belarusian side and threw stones at our border officers. Zadanowicz says soldiers on the Belarus side of the border are always provoking her colleagues and often supply bricks and stones to migrants to throw over the wall at Polish Border Patrol vehicles. She shows me pictures of broken patrol car windows and infrared videos of these attacks. 
Her officers will soon have help after Poland's government saw evidence that Russia's Wagner mercenary group was training along the border on the Belarus side. Poland's prime minister announced he'd send 10,000 additional soldiers to secure the region. Critics of Poland's ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party say it's exaggerating the threat to secure votes for October's national election. But some military analysts disagree. Belarus has evolved from a difficult neighbor to a hostile neighbor. Defense expert Marek Swaczynski says Poland faces not only a hostile border with Belarus, it also borders the Russian territory of Kaliningrad. And most sensitive of all, perhaps, is Poland's 70-mile border with Lithuania, which lies between Kaliningrad and Belarus. It's called the Suwalki Gap, a narrow corridor connecting the Baltic states with the rest of NATO. So in any case of crisis or, God forbid, conflict, keeping this stretch of land in control of NATO forces is crucial for any reinforcements of the forward-deployed NATO forces and for the defense of the free Baltic states. Svachinsky calls the Suwalki Gap the holy grail for Russian President Vladimir Putin. If there were ever a conflict between Russia and NATO countries, analysts say, Putin would likely attack this stretch of land first. And that's why Poland is taking this latest threat from Belarus seriously. And for those living along the border, none of this is good news. Magdalena Ostrovska leads me up a spiral staircase to the top of a century-old water tower converted into a hotel room. It's empty, as are many rooms here at her restored 19th-century hotel along the border outside the town of Białowieża. When the media reported that soldiers from the Wagner Group were across the border, tourists called us and canceled their reservations, she says. They told me they were too afraid to come. I told them there's nothing to worry about. It's peaceful and quiet here, as you can see. But they didn't listen. Ostrovka says her revenue was cut in half this year because of this. What's worse, this comes after the COVID-19 pandemic and a year when this region was blocked off from the public by the military to deal with the migration crisis. And now we're waiting for what's next, she says, shaking her head. Will they lock down this area again because of another incident? This is our future, our jobs. It doesn't seem fair. A few miles away in downtown Białowieża, tour guide Nina Zin says she's also lost money because of the border threat, which she thinks is hyped up by the Polish media and turned into a political spectacle by the government. The government said they won't give an inch along this border, she says, but the helicopter from Belarus flew three full kilometers inside of our country, crossing a NATO border without permission, and we didn't even respond calling out the Polish government for hypocrisy on its tough border stance now appears to be even more in order. Poland's deputy foreign minister was recently fired after his department was caught selling Polish work visas to migrants from across the developing world. The scandal is unfolding as the ruling Law and Justice Party has put border security at the center of its re-election campaign. They built this reality in which this is a very big problem, and now we find out that they're a big part of the problem. Political analyst Andrzej Bobinski says the narrative that law and justice, known inside of Poland as peace, has constructed around migrants and safe borders, has now blown up in its face. This doesn't play very well with the law and justice narrative about how Poland is a place that's closed away from the outside world and how peace is safeguarding our frontiers and not allowing for these scary people to come and change our way of life. 
And whether it's from Belarus, Russia, or from a visa fraud scandal, threats to Poland's ruling party are mounting. And an election is fast approaching. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Poland's border with Belarus. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, Boston Fashion Week, Illuminous, and Stiggity Stacks, a one-night-only future fashion experience, September 30th in Kendall Square. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There is now a deal in place to end the historic five-month screenwriter's strike, but talks haven't resumed yet to bring striking actors back to work. It's Monday, September 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, experts are worried that the looming potential federal government shutdown will stop the collection of economic data. This lack of data would essentially mean that economists, investors, and policymakers would be flying partially blind. Also this hour, we look at why a quarter of all U.S. inmate deaths happen in the same federal prison in North Carolina. And Boston School Superintendent Mary Skipper looks back on her first year on the job. Last year, the goal coming in was to really assess. There were many systems that weren't working. And I think, you know, reflecting back on the air, we did some really great work. Patriots win, Red Sox lose, rain today in the 60s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's a tentative contract agreement between striking writers and Hollywood studios. If approved, this could end a nearly five-month-long strike. But as NPR's Madalite Del Barco reports, film and TV production remains on pause and actors are still on strike. The Writers Guild of America and major Hollywood studios have finally agreed on a new contract. If it gets ratified by members, it would end a work stoppage that ground Hollywood to a halt. Film and TV premieres have been delayed, and workers across the entertainment industry have been out of work since May. CEOs from four Hollywood studios joined negotiators at the bargaining table. They hammered out issues such as higher residuals when shows are rerun on streaming platforms. At issue were minimum writing staffs for TV series and protections against replacing writing work with artificial intelligence. Though the writer's deal is done, the actors' union SAG-AFTRA remains on strike against the studios over similar issues. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. A note, the SAG-AFTRA union represents most of NPR's journalists, but under a separate contract. 
The Speaker of Canada's lower house of parliament is apologizing for inviting a man to attend Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's address to Canadian lawmakers. It was given last week. Dan Karpinchuk tells us that the man fought for the Nazis during World War II. Yaroslav Honka was given a standing ovation after he was introduced by House Speaker Anthony Rota, who called him a hero. Honka had fought for the 1st Ukrainian Division during the war, but the division was under the command of Hitler's SS, and Jewish groups say it was responsible for the mass murder of innocent civilians. Rota said he deeply apologized to Jewish communities in Canada and around the world. Dan Karpinchuk reporting. Officials in Hawaii say that later today, some residents of Maui will be getting their first look at the damage done by last month's deadly wildfires. Jackie Young with Hawaii Public Radio reports some residents received approval over the weekend to return to view their properties. Officials are restricting access to areas in the actual burn zone that have been cleared by the EPA of toxic debris. For the first ones returning, that's only property on Kaniel Road, known as Zone 1C. Residents had to prove they lived in or owned property in that area. They then were issued personal protective equipment and given a demonstration of how to wear the special suits, booties, gloves, and masks. All were warned to avoid breathing the hazardous air and to rest frequently. Even though aerial images show not much is left of their longtime homes, some built in the 70s, residents said they were ready to return to grieve and heal as much as possible. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Young in Honolulu. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state is making a 90-day push to fill empty, subsidized apartments. That comes after an investigation by WBUR and ProPublica found nearly 2,300 of the state's 41,000 public housing units are vacant. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports. The state's public housing division says it will provide money and other assistance to help local housing agencies finish repairs and find new tenants. Chelmsford Housing Authority Director David Hedison says he's thrilled the state took action. All too often, it was very disjointed, the response from when vacancies were reported for when help would come. And it appears to me that now all hands are on deck. And if there's an issue, they're going to be highly responsive. State housing officials say they are also trying to fix problems with the wait list for apartments. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is clarifying her role in auditing the state legislature. Leaders on Beacon Hill haven't been cooperating with Auditor Diana DeZaglio's efforts to audit the legislature. She sued the legislature in July. She also launched a ballot question that would allow her to audit them. Campbell explained how the suit and ballot question will play out on WCVB's On the Record. There are two separate processes. On the one hand, we have to decide a decision on whether or not we are going to represent the auditor and what the position will be in that matter. Separately, the ballot initiatives go through a constitutional sort of checklist and process, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a separate question. I take no position on that. Ballot initiatives still need to get more than 70,000 signatures of support before moving to the next stage of the process.
A frequent Orange Line rider will soon become Boston's first representative on the MBTA Oversight Board. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu is set to name Mary Skelton Roberts to that newly created role. Roberts is a senior advisor for the nonprofit Climate Beacon Project. She tells the Boston Globe improving the T will lead to a stronger economy and help the city address its climate goals. Mayor Wu will be on WBUR's Radio Boston today to discuss Robert's appointment. Listen to that conversation at 11. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. And Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Patriots beat the New York Jets 15-10 to yesterday at the Meadowlands. Meanwhile, the Red Sox lost to the White Sox 3-2 in six innings at a rain-soaked Fenway Park. Rain today, it'll be in the 60s, drying out overnight and in the 50s. Some morning showers tomorrow, then partly sunny in the 60s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. After the death of Masa Jina Amini in Iran a little over a year ago, a protest movement exploded in Iran that caught the attention of the world. And a slogan emerged, Woman, Life, Freedom. But how does the wife of Iran's president feel about the calls for change in her country? We had the opportunity to ask her. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, hopes for a deal to keep the government open are not high here in Washington. Yeah, it's September 25, which means Congress only has about five days left to avoid a government shutdown. Given the infighting in the Republican Party, it looks less likely that a deal can be reached in time, which leads to the question of what effects a government shutdown could have on the U.S. economy. NPR's David Gura is with us now to talk about all this. Good morning, David. Hey, Michelle. So let's point this out again. The people who get your Social Security checks out, who process your passports, all these functions of government, these people won't be getting paid. But what could the other economic effects of a government shutdown be? Yeah, I don't want to diminish the difficulty of that, both to people and businesses. Keep in mind, though, that when there is a shutdown, everyone does get paid eventually. But yeah, hundreds of thousands of government workers wouldn't get paid. The government wouldn't be able to pay for what it's bought. That has a direct effect on the economy, all kinds of knock-on effects. The severity of a shutdown will depend on how long it lasts, if there is one. And if it were to go on for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, well, the fallout from that would not be huge. But if it were to last longer, then the U.S. economy would take a bigger hit. The financial services firm EY says a shutdown would take one-tenth the percentage point off of GDP every week. Greg Daco is the chief economist at EY who tells me a concern of his is when this could happen. It comes at a time when we are seeing other threats to the U.S. economy. Michelle, the economy is facing all kinds of headwinds right now, and the Federal Reserve fight against high inflation hasn't ended. Well, so tell us more about those potential headwinds. It's a long list of them, according to Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Growth is already slowing. Soon, student loan payments are starting back up for 40 million borrowers. Auto workers are on strike. Energy prices have been rising pretty steadily. One other thing is during a shutdown, policymakers would not be able to get any new economic data. 
That's because the government officials in charge of that data wouldn't be able to work. And as I look at my calendar here on my desk, Michelle, the Labor Department is scheduled to release its next jobs report on Friday, October 6th, so just a few days after the fiscal year ends. And we're supposed to get new inflation data less than a week after that. Well, say more about that, though. How would something like not being able to get fresh data become a significant problem for the economy? So it depends, again, on how long a shutdown lasts, but it could be a big problem. After the last Fed meeting, the Fed chair reiterated he and his colleagues are making decisions about raising interest rates based on the data. If the government can't collect those data and distribute them, Greg Daco says Fed policymakers would be in a real bind at their next meeting. This lack of data in the midst of a government shutdown would essentially mean that economists, investors, and policymakers would be flying partially blind. Flying partially blind, which would be a real challenge for the Fed, which is, of course, hoping to pull off that soft landing, getting high inflation under control without triggering recession. Okay, as quickly as you can, if there's a shutdown, what effect is that going to have on how investors, who do have a lot to say about the economy, how they view Washington's decision-making? Yeah, there's frustration, there's fatigue. I'll say during past shutdowns, the market reaction has been pretty muted. Alec Phillips is the chief political economist at Goldman Sachs. It's difficult to say that this will be a major negative for the market, assuming that it, you know, follows the pattern of previous shutdowns. But of course, those political divisions aren't going away anytime soon. So it's crisis after crisis. And that could take a toll, Michelle. That's NPR's David Gura. David, thank you. Thank you. The president of Iran came to the meeting of the United Nations in New York last week, and so did his wife. Iran's government is under pressure, one year after the death of a woman arrested for allegedly not following Iran's dress code. Security forces crushed the resulting protests, arresting thousands. UN investigators say Iran executed seven people after hasty trials. But we still hear from people in Iran, like 19-year-old Baran, who said she won't cover her hair as the law requires. No, no way. I prefer to die. We are not wearing that hijab because we are still fighting for Mahsa, Nika, Sarina, and everyone killed by Islamic Republic of Iran. She named three of the hundreds who have died in the past year. Amid criticism, Iranian authorities offered the president's wife for an interview. Her name is Jamile Alam al She's in her 50s and is a scholar who has worked as a university professor. And she met us in a New York City hotel room wearing a chador, a black cloth like a cape that she clutched around her so that it covered her head. I am mostly representing women and ladies whose voices have not been heard by Americans. Iranian ladies whose voices have most often been heard in the United States are perhaps quite different than the reality of today's women in Iran. Iranian officials said Jamile Alam al-Hoda's title is not First Lady of Iran. She prefers the more modest designation of the president's wife. She spoke through a male interpreter, and she said many Iranian women embrace a role of supporting their husbands. That is why traditional feminist movements do not tend to be very helpful to them, because their roadmap is quite different. The traditional feminist movements are, in fact, I believe, based on a competition between men and women. 
In her view, American feminism encourages women to focus on financial independence rather than their families. Now, it's important to note that I do not think nor maintain that all Americans feel this way and behave this way and perceive this way. I only name it as such because it is a modern viewpoint. It is a modern pursuit. I think you are correct that Americans have many different views about what it is to be a woman and how one should be as a woman. And they have many choices they can make. It seems that in Iran, the government is denying women that choice, as expressed in the protests of the past year. Why should the government deny women a choice if their views are different than those you have expressed? If we look at the history of the culture of these of our society, we see that women, because they have always been the nucleus or the heartbeat of the immediate and extended family, they have always been receiving keen attention, attention as to what their attire is made of, how is it, what it covers, the level of humility, their comportment throughout domestic as well as external life. But allow me to say this with utmost precision. I deeply believe, based on facts, that this uh, covering is more of a cultural and social issue in Iran rather than a political one. And yet it has led to protests and responses to protests that were violent, in which many people have been killed. If it is merely a cultural and social issue, why does the state perceive a woman removing her headscarf as a threat? If you look at the reality, without prejudgment, uh, the reality and the numbers, which often do not lie, show that a great deal, a great majority, if you will, of the population is requesting a stricter enforcement of the hijab laws. We shared this interview with a specialist on Iran. Robin Wright has written about the country for half a century. She says Iranian women hold diverse views. Some want more freedom, while others are more conservative, matching the opinions of clerics who've held ultimate power since a 1979 revolution. There are two symbols that represent the revolution's goals. One is the anti-Americanism that defines its foreign policy and has for 44 years. And the other is the hijab, which is the symbol of imposing Islamic systems and traditions throughout society. What would happen to this revolutionary government, as it is styled, if women ceased following instructions on how to dress? If the majority of women took off their headscarves or rebelled against the Islamic dress code, that would amount to the unraveling of the revolution. On the day we met the president's wife in New York, Iran's parliament, or majlis, acted in Tehran. Lawmakers voted for larger fines and longer jail terms for violating the dress code. Jamile Alamolhoda insists many Iranians want the law to be enforced. And they keep contacting us, expressing preoccupations and concerns, asking if you allow this kind of laxed behavior, are you not worried that in the future, if it continues and it grows, it will not negatively affect the propagation of the family unit, the health of the family unit in society? Wait, wait, not wearing a headscarf would affect the health of the family unit? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. Lack of humility 
in covering leads to increased nakedness. And this causes family issues. It ends up in the destruction of the family unit. It ends in divorces and such social anomalies. This is one Iranian view. We asked other Iranian women what questions they would have for the president's wife. And one, named Sarah, sent a voice memo, which we play here. She asked us to disguise the sound so authorities could not track her down. (coughs) Sarah asked, what would you say as a mother to the mothers whose daughters, like Masa Amini, were killed during the protests? We passed on that question. She said, I feel their loss. And then she added something. She said men also lost their lives while defending public order in Iran. Some police were killed during the protests. She said men were supporting what she called the dignity of women. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chinoy. You're starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. For the past few years, COVID hospitalizations have typically peaked in January. In anticipation of that pattern continuing, the federal government is again offering free rapid COVID tests beginning today. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds, salemstate.edu slash graduate. Elliott Community Human Services, two community behavioral health centers open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn, elliottchs.org, and Gore Place and their handmade-for-the-holidays outdoor craft fair. Shop small and local from more than 30 makers this Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Discover and rediscover the place we call home with WBUR's new field guide to Boston. Whether you've been here forever or just finding your way, the field guide connects you to greater Boston's neighborhoods, people, and history. Find your way at WBUR.org slash field guide. A good chance of showers throughout the day today, otherwise cloudy and a high near 64. Tonight it falls to a low around 56 and will be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow mostly cloudy again with a high near 62. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including religious organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, 
who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Have you heard the old idea that a cold shower is supposed to be good for you? A plunge in an ice-filled tub is supposed to be good for you, too. I, for one, am not about to find out if this is true, but NPR's Will Stone looked into it. Ready? One, two, two three. three. First, there's the cold shock. Your heart rate jumps, you gasp, stress hormones are released, you feel pain on your skin, and eventually you begin to shiver. <laughs> to the uninitiated, nothing about this sounds like a good idea. But show up on Sunday morning to the sandy spot in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood, and you'll hear plenty of reasons to get in. Because it's awesome. <laughs> Riley Swartz is submerged up to her shoulders. She's one of the regulars here. There's this point where you hit a level where it's not cold anymore, and this calm washes over you. The water temperature in Puget Sound ranges from the mid-40s to mid-50s. It's a great alternative to coffee. That's Ben Paschke. Next to him is Max McFarland, who's training for a marathon. It's like mostly my joints. It feels like it, it definitely helps that, just because I get very sore. Groups dedicated to cold water immersion have popped up all over. Audrey Nassal organizes this weekly gathering. Any anxiety, anything I'm struggling with, it's just gone. And when I come out of the water, it's I've left it in the water. This cold plunge craze is a remarkable turn of events for Francois Aman. He's at the University of Ottawa and has studied cold for more than two decades. I never expected this to take that direction. Historically, the field tended to focus on the risks of cold exposure, military operations, how to survive, not so much the potential therapeutic benefits. That big push towards using ice water as something that is tremendously beneficial is recent. He says many of the popular beliefs floating out there are way ahead of the science. Most of the information we have right now on the health benefits of cold exposure are based on very thin research. You often hear that cold plunging helps the immune system and dampens whole body inflammation, that it has tremendous effects on dopamine and other hormones, or that it can treat various chronic diseases and improve mental health. All of this is plausible, but there's not much high quality evidence coming from studies done under carefully performed conditions. There aren't any rigorous and large randomized controlled trials. A lot of claims are being made and leaps of faith are being made based on absolutely nothing or just a few papers. and than social media. Even the data that do exist are hard to interpret because studies use different methods, temperatures, types of cold. It compares studying cold to exercise. Exercise is different intensity, different frequency, different types of exercise. Cold is exactly the same. There's no single definition of cold plunging or ice dipping as some call it. Usually it's extreme, water in the 50s or much colder. In his lab at the University of Sherbrooke, Denis Blondin mostly uses a special cooling suit so they can control the skin temperature. Their studies usually last a few hours and it's not too cold. Think of being outdoors during late fall in the Northeast with only shorts and a t-shirt. Blondin says research does show that cold exposure has some clear benefits for metabolic health, especially your ability to regulate blood sugar. We see it across the board in basically all cold exposure studies. They also see some changes in resting heart rate and blood pressure. Blondin says these improvements may last for 24 to 48 hours after the cold exposure. So this provides an opportunity for people to do other things to improve their metabolic health and their cardiovascular health. And while there's no indication cold exposure alone leads to weight loss, research does suggest it may help with type 2 diabetes. 
There's also been tremendous interest in the role of brown fat, which gets activated by the cold and helps keep your body warm. But Blondin says it's actually your muscles that are key here, which is why you need to shiver to get these benefits. You've got these contractions that are similar to what you would have with exercise, but the difference that you have with the cold, the muscles that are recruited, it's kind of all over the place. It's everywhere. What's not so clear is how much you can extrapolate these findings on metabolic health to short dips in extremely cold water. There's also some exciting research on mental health. A lot of qualitative data, a lot of anecdotal data out there that people are experiencing improvements in their mood, their mental health. Heather Massey is at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Now we need to work out, does it work, who it works for, and how does it work? Massey is involved in the first major clinical trial on cold water swimming to treat anxiety and depression. Their pilot study found the majority of people experienced improvements in their symptoms after eight sessions bobbing in the water off the coast of England. There are many theories about why this seems to help people. Massey says it could relate to that big hormonal response of getting in the water. People suggest they get a sort of a post-swim high. Cold water also affects the autonomic nervous system, triggering your fight-or-flight response. But submerging your head stimulates the vagus nerve, which has a calming effect. There's also the idea of cross-adaptation, that cold water prepares you for other stressors in life. Plus, the potential social benefits of being with people, in nature, overcoming a challenge. Massey says, yes, there are many open questions about the science of cold plunging. I'm a cold water swimmer myself. I'm not the fun police. I'm not trying to stop people doing it. Do it safely, she says, ideally with others. The cold shock can make you pass out. There's hypothermia and cold injuries. Francois Aman says there's no single protocol, no number of minutes or temperatures that's proven to give the maximum benefits. He only gets in extremely cold water a few times a month, and not for that long. His goal is to build resilience. To control my emotions, even though I'm facing a stress that is extremely painful. But he says doing this every day can be too much stress on the body. Instead, he likes to take a cold shower or get into a bathtub with chilly water around 70 degrees. Just like people would take a coffee, for me, the cold water becomes that coffee. On the beach in Seattle, Audrey Nassal says she started cold plunging to deal with the stress of the pandemic. And it stuck. Especially when I have a bad week, I'm just like, I'm gonna go plunge, I need a reset. A reset that science hopes to learn more about soon. Will Stone, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up at about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear from Boston School's Superintendent Mary Skipper about her first year on the job and what she expects to do differently in her second year. It's 829. Join other runners at City Space on Friday for a jog around the neighborhood and a conversation with leaders in the Boston running community. Free tickets are at wbur.org events. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey has stepped aside as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but the veteran lawmaker says he has no plans to resign from Congress after he and his wife were among five people indicted on corruption charges. The two were accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes that included cash and gold bars. Democratic Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey has already announced he'll challenge Menendez in the Democratic primary. I think it's important that we do everything we can to restore faith in, from the American people in their government. So that's why I'm stepping up to run against him. Kim was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Hollywood writers have agreed to a new three-year contract. Ratification by members of the Writers Guild of America would end a five-month strike against the major film and TV studios. Film critic David Poland says he's not surprised an agreement was reached days into the latest round of negotiations. I truly think that the timing of all of this speaks exactly to when they wanted this to end. And I think they decided that this, you know, this middle of September was going to be the end of it. And that's it took them less than a week to negotiate the deal. Hollywood actors represented by SAG-AFTRA remain on strike. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's fall, which means the beginning of respiratory virus season. As WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports, that means we're likely to see spikes in COVID, flu, and RSV in the coming months. This year, for the first time, there are vaccines for each of the three major viruses that make people sick. Dr. Ashish Jha, dean of Brown University's School of Public Health, says this is significant. We are probably now at a point where more than 100,000 Americans are going to die each fall and winter for a long period of time unless we do something about it. The good news is we now have three highly effective vaccines that can really prevent a large chunk of those deaths. COVID has been on the upswing for much of the past two months. Even as it levels off, RSV and flu are almost certain to rise, though doctors can't predict exactly when. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Haverhill Public Schools are deploying new technology to keep track of students. Kindergarten and first grade students in Haverhill are using high tech IDs to monitor when and where they board school buses. School officials tell the Boston Globe the technology will reduce miscommunication and false emergencies for parents and staff. The last of four suspects arrested for the 2022 killing of a Quincy teenager is due in court tomorrow. Keniel Diaz Romero was initially indicted in July of last year. State and local police went to Puerto Rico to bring him into custody. He's one of four people charged in the killing of 17-year-old Nathan Paul. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. 
The Patriots earned their first win of the season yesterday. They topped the New York Jets 15-10 on the road. The Pats will visit the Dallas Cowboys next Sunday. The Red Sox lost to the White Sox 3-2 at Fenway Park yesterday. The game was called after six innings because of rain. The Sox are off today. And the Bruins shut out the New York Rangers 3-0 in their first exhibition game of the year. Cloudy with highs in the low to mid-60s today. There's a good chance of rain. Still mostly cloudy tonight and we'll have lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, mostly overcast skies and highs in the low 60s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The United States is again providing free at-home rapid COVID tests to anybody who asks for them. Starting today, all households can order four of these tests by going to a website, covidtests.gov. Pretty straightforward. We've called Assistant Secretary Don O'Connell, who leads the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. Assistant Secretary O'Connell, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Why act now? Well, as we head into the fall and winter, if past is prologue, we've always uh, seen cases increase as folks move indoors and start gathering uh, with their loved ones in indoor settings. So we think it's really important that this tool be made available uh, to folks for free as we head into this fall and winter season. I want to tell you a story about something that happened in my family, and you can respond any way that you want. Uh, there seemed to be an increase in COVID cases in the last couple of months. Someone in my family uh, was feeling sick, and so we tested them. They tested positive. They immediately isolated in one room in the house, and nobody else in our family got sick. It turned out not to be that big a deal. Well, that's one of the reasons why testing is so important. If you had not been able to test and, and known that your family member needed to isolate, uh, then it's possible that it would have spread throughout your household. So that's one of the reasons why we think it's important that American families are able to order these uh, four free tests shipped directly to their homes this fall and winter season. And I also noticed that tests, which we paid for over the summer, they're, they're, not like, they're not like super cheap if you do pay for them, right? And these four free tests will help supplement whatever you're able to purchase uh, in the retail setting. Okay, so what does the decision to do this at this point say about the seriousness of the winter that's ahead? Well, COVID is still with us, and you know we're seeing that with a, a small increase in cases we saw uh, towards the end of the summer. Uh, so we're continuing to prepare to make sure that we make these tools available uh, to the American people so they can protect themselves and their loved ones. We know folks are going to be gathering indoors in the coming months, likely uh, with family members uh, who may be elderly or younger or uh, with some immunocompromised risks. And we think uh, being able to protect yourself and your loved ones by uh, knowing whether you have COVID is going to be really important for these coming months. 
You know, let me ask about another aspect of this. When we had this family experience over the summer, of course, we wanted to test everybody else in the family, see if they were okay. So we were like digging around in a drawer for old COVID tests and then trying to figure out what is the expiration date? Is there even an expiration date on this thing? Is this test any good? What would you tell people to do with their older COVID tests that they bought last year in 2021 uh, in this situation? Well, many of the COVID tests have been uh, shelf life extended by the FDA. So it's really important to go to FDA's website and check the expiration for your uh, particular test. But many of them have been extended. You know, when the tests were first manufactured, uh, these were, you know, new in the case of first impression. And the FDA uh, made a a safe uh, assumption about how long they would last. And um, now they've seen that they've last that they actually last longer than initially thought. So really important to go to FDA's website and check what yeah, how long your test is good for. So my two-year-old test or whatever might be okay, depending on what I find when I check. Well, we are seeing that uh, that some last longer than we initially thought. Strongly encourage going to FDA's website to check your particular test. Okay, Don O'Connell is Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. A new NPR investigation has revealed a disturbing pattern. Yeah, of the 5,000 people who died in the past decade while in federal custody, one out of four died in the same prison. NPR's Meg Anderson is with us now to explain what's behind those numbers. Meg, good morning. Good morning. So let me just clarify one thing. There are more than 120 federal prisons, and we are talking about just one. So tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so it is a prison in North Carolina. It's called the Butner Federal Medical Center. And to an extent, more death there makes total sense. It's a prison hospital, and it's the Bureau of Prisons' main cancer treatment facility. Cancer is one of the BOP's leading causes of death. So that explains a lot of it. But it doesn't explain all of it. Um, When we started looking into the experiences of individual people, people who got really sick in prison, people who died in prison, we found stories of inmates all over the country going without needed medical care. And sometimes when they finally did end up at Butner for advanced care, it was too late to do much for them. Tell us about some of the stories you found. Yeah, we found more than a dozen inmates who waited months and some of them even years for medical care. Uh, One inmate who ended up at Butner uh, that we ended up focusing on, his name was Jeffrey Ramirez, and he found a lump in his testicle. He asked to see a doctor, but he didn't get an ultrasound until more than a year after he started complaining. Uh, He was eventually diagnosed with the final stage of testicular cancer. And when I interviewed him this year, he had been released from prison early, essentially to die at home. And he felt sure that it would have been different if he had been on the outside. I know myself. That's the first place I'd go. I'd I'd go to the doctor. This would not happen. And I'm I'm angry. I'm angry because it, it didn't have to get this far. Yeah, and he died just 11 days after he talked with me. Hmm. Okay, but Meg, Butner is a prison hospital. So are these uh, men, women, I guess both, are they getting better care once they get there? Yeah, just men, actually, Um, and not necessarily. We found problems there, too. One man in prison there, Frank Carr, he waited more than a year for heart surgery. When I talked to him over the phone, he sounded panicky. I do not want to die because I see so many people die in here. I've witnessed people die, and I don't want to be one of the statistics. 
And he did end up getting his surgery, but another man we found waited five months for surgery to treat skin cancer. By then it wasn't feasible anymore. Another inmate died after staff failed to give him his anti-epileptic medication. And last fall, two Butner inmates died in the night after they didn't get timely medical attention. And I should note that the BOP declined our request for an interview, um, but they said they're, quote, committed to providing safe and effective health care. Were you able to talk with anyone at the prison? So current and former staff at Butner told me that they think understaffing is the main reason for these delays in care. Of course, one way to fix that would be to hire more people. Another way would be to lower the prison population. But part of the problem is we just don't actually have that much insight into what happens inside prisons. That's according to Michelle Deitch. Um, she directs the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab at the University of Texas at Austin. There are so many things that we don't know about our prisons. How dangerous are they? How much violence is there? How well does the healthcare system work? Things that you would just assume we would know. So until there's independent oversight, it's hard for anyone to recommend concrete steps. Okay. That is NPR's Meg Anderson. Meg, thank you so much for this reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Monday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report previews a Senate Banking Committee hearing later this week on a bill that would allow banks to serve the cannabis industry without worrying about breaking the law. Overcast and low 60s today with a chance of rain. Upper 50s tonight and still cloudy. Low 60s and mostly overcast tomorrow. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. The Great Science Carnival returns with hundreds of STEM-themed activities for the whole family, October 1st, Kendall Square, cambridgesciencefestival.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at oceanstatejoblot.com. Japan's health ministry is approving an Alzheimer's drug made by Cambridge-based Biogen. The drug drug called Lukembi was developed in partnership with the Japanese drug maker Aizai. It does not reverse or cure Alzheimer's, but data suggests it slows cognitive decline caused by the disease. The drug received FDA approval back in July. Woburn-based Abpro is planning to go public through a reverse merger. The company says the $725 million move will help it accelerate the development of its immunotherapies. The deal is expected to close sometime next year. Union Square Donuts is in the process of opening a new location in Harvard Square. The store will be located in the Abbott development. The Boston Business Journal reports the store will open sometime this fall. It'll be Union Square Donuts' sixth Boston area location. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash open house. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
It's been about a year since Mary Skipper began her role as Boston Public Schools superintendent. Now she's starting a new year bound to be full of challenges with COVID rates up, teacher and staffing shortages, and under-enrollment at many schools. Superintendent Skipper joins me now to talk about that. Thank you so much for being here. Well, good morning, Rupa, and thank you for having me. What are you reflecting on as your second year gets underway? So first of all, it feels very nice to have a full year and to be able to start the year. Last year, the goal coming in was to really assess. There were many systems that weren't working, things like transportation and safety and food. And foremost was building a team. And I'm very proud of the team that we've built. And I think, you know, reflecting back on the year, we did some really great work. You know, I can point to, you know, last year we were understaffed with our bus drivers. Now we start very strong. We're fully staffed with bus drivers. In fact, we actually have extra bus drivers for the first time, uh, certainly since pre-COVID-19. This year we start with 150 extra bus monitors. And so while we still want to to get to over 800, we're approaching, you know, we're, we're moving up. Another ongoing issue is teacher and staff shortages. Where is that now, and have you changed your thinking around how to address that problem at all? Hmm. I think in some we've hired about 1,500 new teachers, and so we'll continue to work at this. Most important for us is we want to make sure that our workforce is diverse, that it reflects our student body. A recent report found that Massachusetts teachers of color are more likely to be laid off than their white colleagues, and uh, recently top current and former BPS administrators have claimed that the district uses its disciplinary process to target them for firing. Are you concerned about the environment for educators of color within BPS? So I think we, we always have to be aware and concerned. I asked the district to employ a independent counsel. We have that report. You know, I felt that there were some very good recommendations to strengthen our systems that would prevent bias from happening. So uh, I fully intend to implement those recommendations. So that will also um, include retraining our leaders and our supervisors so that they are very clear on what the law is uh, and what the rights of employees are. Turning to special education, there have been ongoing concerns about a lack of resources there. Last year, a report recommended the district revamp how it determines special education eligibility to reduce disparities by race, gender, and English learner status. Have you been able to address those concerns? In the case of special education, uh, that was one department that we had to completely restructure. It just was not staffed properly, and uh, there were many of the leadership positions that were vacant. We've been able to fill all of those. I'm thrilled that KCL um, has come in as the, uh, the chief of specialized services. She has many years in Worcester and Boston. Um, we believe that under her leadership, as well as restructuring and creating several key leadership roles, that we'll be able to address many of the findings that we had in the Council of Great City Schools report. BPS has a lot of under-enrolled schools. How are you thinking about making decisions about closing or possibly merging schools without blindsiding families or educators? First of all, with enrollment, we're thrilled that we have seen so many multilingual learners enter our system. Since August 4th, we've had 1,000 multilingual learners register. You know, we're, we're seeing enrollment actually stabilize in some of our schools. I think that the high school area is an area that hasn't had the attention paid to it that it that really it should have. The problem is literally decades and decades of deferred maintenance in these buildings or vision to build new buildings. At day's end, 
in order for the BPS to be the district that we are talking about for every student and for every black and brown student who history has shown here, it has not been the district that they need. It will take our business community, it will take our our nonprofits, it'll take the average citizen and our media to be able to shine lights on not just the things that aren't working, but also the things that are, so that our students and our staff feel proud every day that they come through the doors and that it is a greater source of motivation to continue that work. Mary Skipper is superintendent of Boston Public Schools. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rupert. I really appreciate you having me. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the exodus of ethnic Armenians from a section of Azerbaijan, plus the giant piece of artwork in Nevada that's nearly one square mile in size. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Art Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. Who is joining the military these days? It's a diverse crowd, but according to recruiting numbers, a smaller one. So have you guys ever thought about the Army? Not particularly. I might pass for now. Okay. What about you? I'll probably pass. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Why the military is struggling to attract new troops on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The White House is making preparations for a potential government shutdown if Republican House lawmakers can't reach a budget deal. Hawaii residents are preparing to return to parts of Maui for the first time since wildfires last month. And starting today, the federal government is is making another four COVID-19 tests available for free to each household. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Showers are likely today. It'll be in the low 60s. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight, and it'll be cloudy. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. A tentative deal in the Hollywood writers' strike, plus the unintended consequences of sanctions on Russians using Bitcoin. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Good morning to you. The Hollywood Writers Guild is calling a proposed three-year contract agreement exceptional, but writers and actors will stay on strike until they can get a look at the deal and decide how to vote on it. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. The Writers Guild of America says it won, quote, meaningful gains and protections for writers. The union had been seeking improvements in pay, higher minimum number of writers working on shows, and protections on the use of artificial intelligence to create script material. 
For now, the two sides are finalizing contract language. The WGA expects to release details about the agreement in the coming days. The tentative deal will need to be ratified by members, though in the previous strike in 2008, more than 90% did approve the deal reached by their union representatives. In the meantime, writers can stop picketing, but the union cautions that they remain on strike as they have been since May 2nd. As for striking actors, who are also concerned about pay, the shift to streaming and AI, there's no deal or negotiations yet. sag which represents them, said it's looking forward to reviewing the writer's agreement. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. This week, the Senate Banking Committee is set for a hearing on a bill to allow banks to serve the cannabis industry. Federal law prohibits that now, which makes life harder for cannabis businesses and customers in states that have legalized. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer explains. Dr. Shonda Macias owns a medical marijuana dispensary in Washington, D.C. If you want to buy cannabis, gummies, or edibles from her, you need cash. Macias can't take credit or debit cards. She can't find a bank to process the payments. That's because marijuana is still illegal under federal law. Macias says marijuana business owners like her have to do everything in cash, even making tax payments. We have to set up an appointment and send people with thousands of dollars to a IRS facility. The Secure and Fair Enforcement Regulation, or Safer Banking Act, would ensure that owners of legal cannabis businesses in states where marijuana is legal can access banking services like credit card processing and loans. Julie Hill teaches law at the University of Alabama. It would also provide a clear indication from Congress to bank regulators that they want there to be banking in this space. Hill says banks would still have to certify their marijuana business customers were obeying state laws, for example, not selling to minors or growing without a permit. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Markets, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down two-tenths of a percent now. Crude oil is down slightly, moving below $90 a barrel just now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. International sanctions against Russia target both traditional financial instruments and digital currencies like Bitcoin. The crypto rules try to prevent people moving wealth into and out of Russia. And last year, the EU moved to stop Russians elsewhere in Europe from using cryptocurrency. But this is a blunt instrument. Levi Bridges reports. After Russia invaded Ukraine, Olga Shkolina fled to the EU with her teenage daughter. Shkolina is an activist from northern Russia and left to avoid persecution from Russia's government. Shkolina landed safely in Poland, but the move complicated her financial life. It's impossible to make a transfer from a Russian bank to a European one. Shkolina says her ex-husband in Russia couldn't send her child support for their daughter because Western sanctions cut off Russian banks. So he started sending Shkolina the payments using cryptocurrency, which is decentralized, not connected to a bank. Shkolina would then convert her crypto into cash through what's called a crypto exchange. They sent me a message saying that the transaction was blocked because of suspicious activity. 
But Shkolina says last winter, those crypto child support payments were blocked. Russians like her were suddenly booted off major crypto exchanges after new EU sanctions took effect. The sanctions greatly affect Russian citizens like Shkolina, who live in the EU. The goal is to stop sanctioned Russians from finding loopholes to move money out of Russia to the West. But it turns out, within Russia, crypto can flow relatively freely. It is still fairly easy to move rubles to different cryptocurrencies and vice versa. Adam Zarazinski is CEO of the cryptocurrency analytics company Inca Digital. He says people living in Russia can still convert rubles into crypto through certain exchanges. And some people have even used crypto to support Russia's war against Ukraine. A number of pro-Russian groups have raised crypto assets to the tune of $20 million. Arda Akartuna tracks Russian groups that help fund the war with crypto. He's an analyst with Elliptic. He says the problem is smaller crypto exchanges can still do business within Russia. Western lawmakers have been cracking down on some exchanges, but plenty of crypto is still getting through that funds Russia on the battlefield. And ironically, the crypto sanctions are having a large effect on Russian anti-war activists. Again, crypto analyst Adam Zarazinsky. Unfortunately, Russians that are leaving Russia and against the war are getting swept up in the mix. Many are living in Europe now after fleeing Russia. But the simple fact of them being Russian means their crypto wallets are now blocked. I'm Levi Bridges for Marketplace. And plastic uses oil, right? Lego uses plastic, right? And the Danish toy maker had been testing bricks made from recycled bottles. News is the sustainability math doesn't work. The recycled bricks put more climate-altering carbon into the atmosphere than fresh bricks. When the full product lifestyle is taken into account, one pound of new ABS plastic generates two pounds of carbon, and Lego is now looking for ways to lower that ratio. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter, online at nutter.com. The Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. And Celebrity Series with Jazz Along the Charles. Here, 25 bands play one set list along the Esplanade, October 7th. Free to all, jazzalongthecharles.com. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.